Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall for you. Today is August 23rd, 2018. I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California. And the West Coast Foreclosure Show, as I believe my listeners know by now, is broadcast typically every other Thursday. And then Neil himself is handling his show every other Thursday. So between Neil and I, we've we've got you covered and we've got this very important area of the legal foreclosure world covered. Uh, This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And the show is made possible because of donations from listeners like you Neil and I thank you, Neil, particularly very much for your donations. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly on the blog by selecting the Donate button at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, today we are going to be discussing institutional bias. Uh, For those of you, and I'm sure there are a lot of you listening in the audience today who've listened to me on Neil's show, I've even used the word bugaboo. That's sort of an old school term that we don't know if that passes the current uh, litmus test or uh, discussable words in the 21st century. But regardless, uh, the term is kind of a bugaboo to me. That is uh, institutional bias. And what institutional bias is, institutional bias is where a party who is drawing on longstanding, long-term, multiple established precedent really kind of slam dunk practical and legal findings predicating their position that that party has so much leverage going into the the legal question at hand. And of course, the legal question at hand on this show is always, always, always foreclosure related, whether it's from 
the judicial side where our homeowners are being sued or whether it's from the non-judicial side where because of the ridiculous presumptions that the law and non-judicial foreclosure states afford institutional players like the Bank Bank of America, you know, like Bank of America, like Wells Fargo, like Citibank. In other words, the institutional players who sue to evict homeowners from their homes. That scenario is, is of course, what we address on this show. And in terms of the situation with institutional bias, there are, I would say, and I've, I've laid this out in my, uh, my write-up for today's show, uh, posted on Neil's blog. Basically, we're talking about three fundamental areas. We've got the institutional bias of the lenders, servicers, securitized trust, sales trustees, etc. In other words, everybody who's on the payroll of the so-called lender, the so-called securitized trust, where these cases that form the fulcrum of what we talk about on this show, where those cases come from. Again, those cases could be, you know, kind of the West Coast version, which is the focus of the show. And we on this show on the West Coast side, sometimes we'll talk about other matters, judicial, judicial foreclosure matters, when there's a, uh, you know, a tie-in that really should be made available and really should be put out there for you, the listening audience, so that you can see how that would play out in your arena as well. But yes, institutional bias plays out in all foreclosure arenas, whether it's in judicial foreclosures, whether it's in non-judicial foreclosures. We see it all the time. And what it means is that when you're in court, and, and going back to my outline, when I outlined this you know, for today's show, I listed the institutional bias of the courts and associated judges and clerks. I actually made that topic point number three rather than two. It absolutely needs to be topic point number two. And the reason for that I'm sure will be obvious momentarily. The reason for that is because the first line of attack in most people's problems in life, whether it be a bad marriage leading to divorce, whether it be bad or even fraudulent medical medical debts leading to bankruptcy or foreclosure debts and foreclosure scenarios leading to bankruptcy or other kinds of traumatic legal turns that happen in people's lives. When you get into court, that's like the first line of government reality that a lot of people are going to deal with. In other words, to put it kind of more plainly and more succinctly, Tons of people in America, they'll never get in front of their congressperson. They'll never get in front of a congressional panel. They'll never get in front of, you know, somebody in an administrative proceeding, though, frankly, you do have to go through that route 
to even litigate basic legal conflicts these days because one of the one of the consequences, one of the, I would even say, uh, predictable anticipated realities of the alphabet soup topic three, for those of you who have seen the outline, one of the predictable anticipated realities of topic three, the alphabet soup, you know, kind of uh, profusion of government agencies at every level, federal, state, and otherwise, is that you can't even sue people over a basic dispute in many cases now without going through some alphabet soup agency, state, federal, or otherwise, though all judicial decisions are made through federal or state jurisdictional frameworks. But yes, you have to go through one of those frameworks to sue for a uh, a work-related injury uh, where you have workers' comp, you know, basically control how a work site injury will be disposed of. And, of course, I'm not going to get into all the particulars of that. There's no way that there's time for that on the show today. It's just a brief vignette to, to say and to show how government agencies control this funnel. Remember, there's a funnel in everything in life. Uh, there's a funnel to where are you going to go for a restaurant tomorrow night if that's what your plan is? Well, you've got hypothetically maybe 30,000 choices. The internet certainly has made choosing one out of 30,000 restaurants, let's say within a 300 mile radius of where you live, that prospect, which didn't exist as recently as 20 years ago is now something that you could consider. Uh, it would be kind of um, a little bit off the uh, the wall, obviously, to, to, to take into account that range of possibility. Nevertheless, the, there's a much bigger funnel at the top end with everything. So the big funnel to legal solutions, to legal complaints, to getting your legal matter resolved, whether it involves a divorce, whether it involves your home and foreclosure, whether it involves even criminal charges, you need to go through legal procedure to get those matters resolved. And there are more kind of stops, even at the big side of the funnel, which is where you're at the beginning of dealing with your legal matter. Your legal matter could all of a sudden go from a very big funnel where you've got a lot of options and a lot of people that you could deal with to a much smaller funnel where the government is already intruding and limiting your options and saying you have to go through an administrative hearing before you can have your workman's injury addressed, for instance. So in terms of how all this plays out in foreclosure, lenders, servicers, securitized trusts, sales trustees, all these parties are able to use the law that they've created over the last 10 years. How did they create that law? Institutional bias. And that's where the courts come in. That's where the judges come in. So where people's complaints go initially, of course, somebody's in a foreclosure situation, their first call, their first line of attack, if you want to use that word, their first line of redress, which I think is a more 
uh, let's say, accurate term to, to describe how one would initially respond to a foreclosure problem. So to redress that situation, the homeowner in question, the borrower in question, whether it's an investor situation or whether it's a homeowner situation, they're going to contact their services. And maybe they try to contact their lender initially. Then they realize, well, everything's funneled, to use that term again. Everything is funneled through the servicer. And the securitized trust uh, organizations and the lenders, they set up this arrangement where all loan matters were to be basically put through the servicers. They did this to economies of scale, basic you know, kind of bald, bald, bold capitalism, which, you know, not that this is related uh, certainly directly. I think it's related indirectly in some ways. I mean, I I am a fan of capitalism and free markets, but I'm I'm very much old school. So I think crony capitalism is unfortunately where we have gone in this country largely over the last particularly 10 years, even going back 20 and crony capitalism basically means that there are a lot of anti-competitive uh, standards that are put into otherwise free markets, and the government is in the very middle of all of that, and that absolutely shows up in the foreclosure arena. It absolutely shows up in the foreclosure collapse of 2008, I mean, the government was absolutely in the middle of all that on all sides with all kinds of anti-competitive and statutorily heavy regulations, you know, which again are beyond the scope of my talking about on the, on the show today. Nevertheless, those standards, those regulations, those interferences have real consequences. And one of the consequences is that the people at the top, whether it's government players, government agencies, or whether it's the, the, the you know, the chase uh, plaintiff or defendant in a California case, for instance, whether it's Wells Fargo, whether it's Bank of America, the other big servicer, institutional trust players like Deutsche Bank, New York Bank, Mellon, my listeners know. I mean, they know these players and unfortunately, they're too familiar with some of them when they're on their own loan, even, even, if, even if their being on their loan is something that has already been exposed as illegitimate, that we can, we can expose that in a paper sense doesn't mean we can get a judge to sign off on it. Which leads me to my next segue, which is the institutional bias of the courts and the associated judges and clerks. So, you know, here's the problem. I mean, we, we can even thread this back to the sales trustees, the, the last topic, sort of subtopic discussion about institutional bias of the lenders and servicers. The sales trustees will often file what's called the Declaration of Non-Monetary Status here in California. And they'll do something similar in other non-judicial foreclosure states. So if we sue them, they will say, well, look, we're just a functionary. I mean, we're just, we have no proactive role on anything. The servicer told us to file this, uh, you know, notice of trustee sale. The, the servicer 
told us to schedule the auction sale on such and such date, we're merely a functional intermediary. We don't have any power at all. We don't make any decisions at all. Well, of course, we all know that when you as a functionary are being directed by another party to engage in fraudulent or otherwise illegal conduct, you can't hide behind or stand behind the claim that we didn't know what we were doing. We were just doing what we were told. No, that doesn't fly. And at least for some causes of action in California, and this is not parenthetical because it's actually quite important, and it's a little nugget that that people can use as a takeaway from this call in terms of where in California, if you are litigating, and and by the way, I I will give the disclaimer, which I give, I believe I do this all the time, but there's a disclaimer on the uh, the radio uh, audio on this show regardless. But the disclaimer, of course, is I'm not giving legal advice. I'm just talking about topics generally. And that's not some sort of fail-safe or, 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 or some, some kind of uh, CYA. This is very uh, real world in the best way, not, not some sort of mollifying way. It's real world in the sense that Neil's purpose, my purpose, is to get out topics to the audience. And we're not even talking about the general audience. There may be general listeners. That's fine. We're talking about general listeners. We're talking about specific listeners. We're talking about people who have foreclosure crises in front of them tonight, today, next week, next month. The purpose of this show is to communicate with everybody related to the foreclosure environment. Our real target audience are those who listen to the show to basically advocate on behalf of borrowers. That the other side listens to the show too. We know this. I know this. I'm not going to, to you know, parse that out and stop presentation on this show because some of the uh, listening audience is actually listening on behalf of the other side can't control that, and it doesn't impact the good that we're trying to do on this show. So bottom line, just to finish the thread on what I was talking about a minute ago, with these sales trustees, yes, they're held liable sometimes. California Civil Code 2923.55, that is still applied to them by some judges in California. So you might want to make a note of that. 2923.55, California Civil Code, it will be applied by some judges to sales trustees in these, in these foreclosure lawsuits in California. So further on the, the alphabet soup bias that is one of the topics of today's show, I mean, the problem here is that, look, a lot of our listeners know that Various government agencies have sued, even gotten multi-billion with a B, typically millions. I mean, it, it's rarely that you're going to see billion-dollar billion dollar judgments or billion-dollar, uh, you know, kind of orders that, however they would be parsed out, would apply to a specific entity, whether it's a, a, an entity like Wells Fargo or, you know, Chase, one of the super 
super big bank, doesn't matter. You're typically going to see, you know, millions or tens of millions maybe, which I'm not saying that's jump change or pocket change to anybody, but it's, it's easily something that can be accounted for and written off in terms of basic accounting. So it's absolutely true. I mean, the, the big player banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, et cetera, the ones who were part of the TARP bill, you know, the TARP bailout from 2008, 2009. I mean, that's almost 10 years ago now. And when you look at the reality of that, it's almost a trillion dollars. I mean, the numbers are absolutely mind-boggling. Where did that money go? Was there ever an accounting? That's certainly a topic, not even necessarily for another show. That's a topic that should be taken up somewhere, and I hope it is. Uh, but it's an example of, of, of moral hazard and how the big banks have never been held to account for what they did. Just real quickly, moral hazard is basically where in the free market, the, the technically free market, the otherwise free market, a big player like the government allows a player who's just committed a lot of fraud or a lot of bad conduct, in this case, the securitization of loans that the lenders knew were going disproportionately to to borrowers who couldn't repay. And so the whole theory that, well, we put them in a pool of 5,000 or 10,000 if we have a few bad loans, that can all be written off. It's not going to affect the pool. Well, if you have a 10% default rate rather than a 1% default rate, guess what? The whole pool goes down. And that, in short and in large, is what happened to cause the securitized trust fiasco debacle, which led to the mortgage meltdown, which led to these big institutional banks being you know, bailed out literally to the tune of many hundreds of billions of dollars. And what has the average borrower, what has the average American received as a result of that bailout? I think my listeners know the answer to that. Uh, it starts with zip, zero, nada. So back to the alphabet soup organizations. You know, even the CFPB, I mean, yes, it's nominally a friend of homeowners. Yes, it will sometimes intervene in a small way to get sale dates postponed. But rarely do they visit the actual litigation arena. In fact, they hide behind kind of standard government norms to avoid getting in the litigation arena. There are federal agencies which will get involved all day long in outstanding private lawsuits. If it relates to a, a pet issue or another issue that they want to get involved in, civil rights is often an arena where you'll see this. And some of those civil rights cases are quite righteous, I would be the first to say. Nevertheless, it's very selective, this disinclination to get in the middle of ongoing litigation. I see this typically consistently, I'm not saying only, but consistently with the CFPB and the matters that they surveil and they have purview over when it comes to foreclosure matters. I don't see a lot of restraint on the part of other alphabet soup organizations when it comes to a lot of other private litigation matters around the country. 
So it's selective enforcement. It's selective involvement. I think it's uh, disreputable. I think it's 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 it 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 it's 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 a um, it's a norm that people should complain about, and I'm bringing attention to it. And then when you get into the FTC involvement in these cases, I mean, the FTC seems to be quite keen to intervene in cases where there's a chance that uh, homeowners might get redress on a big level. Typically where you would see this is, is joinder and class action. And again, this is only a 30-minute show, so I can't go into great detail. However, what I can say is that joinder is a really appropriate remedy for addressing foreclosure matters. So I always talk about first principle. I always think about first principle questions. If joinder is a great remedy for addressing foreclosure matters, why are there so few joinder cases? Why is there no joinder movement within the foreclosure arena environment, particularly on the non-judicial side, which is where you would create a joinder uh, for plaintiffs in a foreclosure environment in a non-judicial state like California, like Nevada, like Oregon, like the state of Arizona? Why, why isn't there a movement? Why, why aren't there a lot of joinder cases there? And then, of course, when you look at the the particulars, when you look at the big picture and then essentially take the lens and narrow it down to the smaller picture, what you see is that bar associations in all these states, Maine, particularly California, and federal agencies, particularly the FTC in California, interfere with the tiny, yes, tiny number of firms involved in joinder cases. So, Look, it does all come back to basic market dynamics. Joinder cases should and could work on paper to advance homeowner interest. The absence of joinder cases in the foreclosure environment then needs to be put down to something other than market forces. What is the reason? The reason is government interference. The reason is government going after the small number of joinder firms that are moving cases or trying to move cases in, forward in, in this environment. In other words, when there are only a few firms taking on joinder cases, and then when the joinder cases are taken on, they get shut down by government fiat and government regulators like the FTC, then, of course, that puts uh, – that puts a damper on any other attorneys that might be inclined to get involved in this arena. So the final question here is, what are the implications for homeowners? What can you do about it? Well, one thing you can do about it, and this is not an incidental small level, this is a, this is a fundamental small level. If you look up your attorney's discipline, either your current attorney or one you're considering, you see, gee, they have bar inquiries. And gee, you notice that they have the bar inquiries relate to foreclosure matters. Well, there are a number of fundamentals about that. I could spend a whole show on that. I won't right now. However, what I can and will say is that as to those bar discipline matters, 
a lot of times the borrower is overzealous when it comes to these types of foreclosure matters. A lot of times the borrower is overzealous, whether it's California or elsewhere, when they're going after a self-employed attorney. Self-employed attorneys are disproportionately involved in handling foreclosure matters for borrowers. And that's just the reality. So when you make decisions about who you will hire or how you will handle your case, you need to take everything from attorney discipline to what kind of government action you've seen around your case with a grain of salt. And individual litigants, individual attorneys still make a big difference here, and they do prevail. I repeat, they do prevail sometimes. Uh, so I will be back with listeners two weeks from now, and we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.